Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Carl McCollman, the author of Eternal Heart, The Mystical Path to a Joyful Life. Carl is a contemplative writer, speaker, and teacher. He's the author of numerous books, including The Big Book of Christian Mysticism, Answering the Contemplative Call, and Unteachable Lessons, to name a few. In the conversation, Carl and I discuss the meaning of mysticism, exploring various traditions, the spiritual path, the wisdom of silence, and much more. Now, please welcome the wise and gracious Carl McCollman. Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, Carl. Thank you for connecting today. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Well, I am I am happy. It's a pleasure to connect with you. I've enjoyed your book, Eternal Heart, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm happy to discuss it with you. I think one of the first questions that we typically ask is something around, you know, your path. What led you down this particular path early on? Is there anything that comes to mind? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a big question, especially for somebody <laughs> yeah. as old as I am. Um, the, um, you know, I, I come out of, I come out of the Christian tradition. I was raised, my mom and dad were Lutheran. So I was raised in the Lutheran, kind of a mainline Protestant church as a teenager back in the 1970s. I, um, I was baptized in the Holy spirit and had that kind of charismatic experience. And, um, you know, and that really began a lifetime of searching. I, um, I went for a, for a season. I was very involved in the Episcopal Church. Had time away from kind of you know institutional religion. You know, explored some alternative paths. I'm very interested in Buddhism and you know kind of pagan or earth centered spiritualities. And it was really the you know the monks probably more than anything. You know, you and I are both we both live in Georgia, and there's a wonderful Trappist monastery in Conyers, Georgia, just 20 miles from where I live. And, um, you know, that's the same order that gave us Thomas Merton, that gave us Thomas Keating, you know, just a number of wonderful spiritual teachers in our time, as well as historical figures like Bernard de Clairvaux. But, um, you know, so it's really through the monks uh, and some other some other um, things that I won't necessarily go into right now, but especially the monks that really brought me into being interested in Catholic Christianity. And so about 15 years ago, I became I became a Catholic Christian and um you know, that's a whole nother conversation in and of itself. But, um, you know, the, the golden thread through all of this kind of institutional external stuff, you notice I'm, I'm always talking about kind of the external things I've done, is that interior life, that kind of rich desire to, um, to access, you know, for lack of a better term, goodness, truth and beauty, which um, I think there's some pretty good philosophical and theological reasons to say that that is accessed primarily in our own heart. Obviously, uh, a perspective that informs the book, uh, Eternal Heart. So, um, so you know, so there's this kind of internal quest for meaning, for purpose, for the divine, you know, for, for union with God, for lack of a better term, as well as this external, you know, kind of 
growing up in a Christian context and still having a relationship with that, which I know a lot of people struggle with. And, and I'll just say, as somebody who is a practicing Christian, I struggle with it too. So, um, you know, so there's, there's two dimensions, obviously, but, but both have had meaning for me. Well, I greatly appreciate you sharing some background there. Um, this is primarily a philosophy podcast. I'll, Although we have many different guests on the on the show, but I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about defining some terms. The subtitle of the book, The Mystical Path to a Joyful Life, how do you define mysticism and maybe what are some synonyms there? I, I do come out of a theistic perspective, and I want to say this right now, you know. Uh, I would assume that for a philosophy podcast, not everybody who listens would necessarily share my religious uh, affiliation, and and I'm profoundly respectful of that. So um, so I'm going to talk out of my own experience, but it's not meant in any way to be to be uh, aggressive towards people who hold different perspectives. I, hopefully, in a spirit of goodwill and inquiry, we can just talk about how you know there are different experiences for different people. And mysticism is a great way to kind of to kind of plunge into that because this is a word that uh, historically has a long relationship within the Christian tradition, but especially you know, in the last 100 to 150 years, it's a word that has become more trans-religious in, in its application. And, you know, you'll, you'll find, you know, go on to, to Amazon right now or, or any other, you know, website that focuses in, in books and literature, and you'll find books on Jewish mysticism, on Buddhist mysticism, Eastern mysticism, pagan mysticism. I saw a book recently on astrology for mystics, you know, so almost any topic that kind of gets related to, to kind of interior inquiry uh, can be tied in with this, this mysterious word, mysticism. So what I'm going to do is try to offer you how I approach it, again, as somebody out of the Christian tradition but then we can take a step back and, and maybe reflect on how mysticism does have maybe a more universal kind of application or meaning. And I think, you know, a great way to, to begin to unpack complex words like mysticism is to begin with etymology. So it does come from the same Greek word that we get the word mystery from, and also the word mute, like the mute button on your remote. Um, you know, I'm old enough that I remember, you know, when I was young, people with, with, who were speech impaired were said to be mute. You know, now we would say that's that's not really the most appropriate way to describe a person like that. But but you know that there's that historical association of mute with with silence or the you know the inability or incapacity to speak. Um, but then also mystery. That's the other side of it. You know, and what I like to say is this is not mystery in the Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew sense. You know, a puzzle that is to be solved but rather mystery in the taking us beyond the limits of human cognition sense, that which ultimately cannot, cannot be captured in, in words or language. You know, and, and I mean, if you want to get postmodern, you know, that leads us to some interesting questions. You know, can, can, we, even, can we even imagine, can we even articulate something that is beyond the, the, the limits of human, human thought or human reason. And so what, what the mystics would say is yes, you know, it may be beyond, beyond reason or beyond language, but it's not beyond love or it's not beyond imagination. And so, so this idea that we, we can imagine this 
dimension of experience or dimension of existence that cannot fully be put into words, cannot fully be grasped by the cognitive mind. So again, you know, talking about it from a theistic perspective, this idea that, you know, we live in a world that was created by a divine being, by divine love, if you will. I like to say love with a capital L, love in sentient form. Um, and so this question is, if there is love at the heart of all things, is that love um, capable of being in relationship with us? Historically, the mystics would say, yes, that we can have a relationship with the divine, however you want to image it. You know, you can, you can be very naive and talk about the old man in the sky that looks like Gandalf or Dumbledore, <laughs> you know, that kind of archetypal image. Or you can be much more sophisticated, like many of your 20th century theologians like Teilhard de Chardin, you know, or Paul Tillich or people like that, who talk about the divine in terms of the ground of being, you know, that which is, that which is higher and deeper than, than, than existence or being itself. So, um, you know, and, and we, can, we can play with that, if you will, but, but I tend, I'm a bear of little brain. I tend to go back to this idea that, that, that it's possible to be in love with love. And um, you can't put that into words. You can't, you can't really nail that down in any kind of a linear way. But I think it's something that can be experienced and can be felt. Now, different people who have different kind of narrative frameworks about how they find meaning in life will interpret that in different ways. Somebody who is an atheist or, for that matter, who is a Buddhist might say, well, yes, love is a meaningful category. But that doesn't mean love is sentient. That doesn't mean love has a creative function or a function as a judge or a healer or a savior. Okay, I, I certainly respect that and I can see the logic behind that line of thinking. Uh, approaching kind of the, the narrative of belief from a more um, mythical perspective, you know, is is God the old man in the with a beard in the sky? I that that narrative makes no sense to me. I'm much more comfortable with God as the ground of, of being. But I am comfortable with this idea that there is there are dimensions of sentience, dimensions of knowing that are probably beyond the limitations of my existence as as, as a mere mortal. And that so this idea that that a greater a greater being, a greater sentience could could choose to be in relationship with me, I find both compelling and also a way to certainly explain some of my own experience. So, so, so mysticism, this idea that life is a mystery, that there is a way to access that mystery through silence, the silence that moves us beyond language, that moves us beyond knowledge. And that if you, if you adhere to a, a theistic narrative, that we can even speak of that, that ultimate being or that ultimate concern in a kind of personal way. That there is a divine presence that, that not only is love, but that seeks to love and that we are invited into some sort of relationship with that. So that's kind of the, the, the quick and dirty, you know, uh, Christian approach to mysticism. A more larger, maybe, again, philosophical or inner spiritual or inner religious sense, mysticism would be that dimension of mystery that involves the cultivation of a meaningful interior life that, again, will take different forms depending on people's religious or, for that matter, philosophical beliefs. So, so there is a universality. Many people who are interested in the mystical life will say that, that there is a unity in the fact that we're all human beings. We all have beating hearts. We all have cognitive minds. We all experience silence. We experience wonder. We experience unknowing. 
Um, we eventually experience death, we experience grief, loss, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a fundamental unity in being human. So there's going to be a unity in terms of our capacity to receive and experience wonder. But there's also great diversity because the way that I organize and make sense of my life looks different from the way a Buddhist does or a Muslim or a non-believer you know, or a Wiccan, you know, all the way down the line. And so, um, so mysticism seems to have a kind of universal quality, but also seems to manifest in many different dimensions, depending again on people's cultural background and their, their life narratives. I've often heard and, and maybe read in the past, people talk about the mystics teaching us how to see this idea of, of maybe seeing with new eyes or seeing some sort of fresh perspective. Is that, you know, could you say more there? Well, you know, one of the qualities that gets associated with, with mystical writers is this idea of being visionary. And so in it kind of its most, you know, maybe naive form, there's this idea that people have visions they have visions of Jesus, of Mary, of the saints, of angels. And most people are familiar with the idea of lords in France, you know, this, this village where a peasant girl had an, received an apparition of the Virgin Mary. Now, whether you believe in that or not, and interestingly, even the Catholic Church does not require people to believe in that. So you can be a perfectly devout Catholic and say, oh, I, I just think it was all in her head. Um, but obviously, many, many people do believe in it. And, and so it has become a place of pilgrimage, a place where people go and they find, they find spiritual meaning and maybe even spiritual sustenance there. I've never been, so it's, so it's hard for me to say. But, um, you know, but so this idea that being able to have visions, to have a visionary imagination or a visionary consciousness. Um, but, but your question is maybe a little bit more technical. And this idea that, um, that, that the mystery at the margins, at the edge of life, that, that takes us, again, maybe beyond the limits of cognition, beyond the limits of reason, beyond the limits of language, uh, if we are able to step into those places of what the mystics have called of unknowing, of darkness, of the dark night, uh, does that give us a new perspective? You know, in my book, I actually begin with this idea that changing one's perspective can offer new insight into one's life. And I use the example of a figure eight and, and a lemniscate or the, uh, the infinity symbol. So simple mathematical symbol. It's the same symbol, but, you know, you, you, you know, is it vertical or horizontal? And, you know, if it's, if it's vertical, it's the figure eight. If it's horizontal, it's the infinity symbol. And so this idea that that's something that, you know, it's like the same phenomenon, the same data, if you will, but approaching it from a different perspective can offer, offer a, again, a whole new way of seeing or of drawing connections or finding meaning in one's life. And that's why, you know, as somebody who, again, is a practicing Catholic Christian, I still think that the heart of religion, of any religion, is narrative, is story. And so you can argue, you know, obviously, if you change the story, you're going to change people's experience. And I, and I think that that, that, that bears... Um, yeah, scrutiny, that that, that would be a, a pretty obvious, uh, you know, uh, reality for, that most people could could identify. A different story creates a different uh, assumptions and different conclusions about how to find meaning in life. So to, to put a bow on this, yes, I think mysticism invites us into new ways of seeing, but it does that 
by inviting us maybe out of the limitations of our current story, hopefully to find a newer or bigger or deeper story that can kind of give us a different framework for our lives. For someone that's new to the term mystic, when someone says maybe referring to the Christian tradition, the mystics, who might be some pivotal figures that, uh, you know, are, are lumped into that in terms of the mystics for somebody that maybe has some curiosity to, to, to learn well, more. There's, there's, you know, figures that have been identified as mystics virtually in every century of the Christian era. So I'm, I'm just going to name, name a few. Um, and I should also mention, you know, like, like in the Catholic world, people get, uh, canonized as saints, you know, so St. Francis, for example, you know, there was a process by which the, you know, some bureaucrats in the Vatican said, yes, this person is a holy person. We're going to canonize them as a saint. Uh, so there is no similar vetting process that makes somebody a mystic. People, people are identified as mystics because others recognize something within, within them that seems to, again, speak to this deep mystery, this deep, silent spirituality, this sense of, of divine connection. And let me just throw a few names out, including a couple that I've already mentioned. Um, in the 20th century, you have a Jesuit priest named Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Interestingly, he, he was a scientist. He worked as a paleontologist. Um, he worked in China for a number of years. He was involved in the in the dig that that um, gave us the the Peking Man, the the remains of that that early hominid figure that we now call Peking Man. Um, but also, you know, functioned as a Catholic priest, you know, and and wrote uh, very fascinatingly about how do you bring religion and spirituality together. But his writing also um, evinces this profound sense of recognition of a divine presence, literally in all things. Kind of this, um, and the, you know, to quote another Jesuit, uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, the poet, you know, the world is, is, is a, was it, the world's on fire with the grandeur of God. I think I'm misquoting him, but, but you get the gist of it. So, you know, so this, um, this idea, you know, a scientist, you know, but also uh, a person of faith who sees no fundamental contradiction between the two, that, that you can bring those together. So that's one person I would mention. Another also from the 20th century was a Trappist monk, like the, like the monks here in Georgia, a Thomas Merton. I think I did mention him earlier. Merton lived from 1915 to 1968. So he died young. He died in a freak accident. He was electrocuted when he was only 53 years old, but he had had an impressive career as a writer, he wrote his autobiography when he was still a young man, and it became a bestseller in like 1948, somewhere in that era. And then, so he had a 20-year career as a spiritual writer. And especially early in his career, his writings were very kind of garden variety, pious, you know, how to, how to draw closer to, to Jesus through reading the Bible, you know, that kind of thing. But later in his career, he, his heart just expands and he starts writing about interfaith dialogue, interreligious dialogue between Christians and Buddhists. Before he died, he, he went to India and he met a very young Dalai Lama, you know, the same Dalai Lama who's still with us today. Uh, there's a wonderful picture of the two of them together in India. He, he, he corresponded with Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist. He, um, he, was also, he also wrote uh, uh, works of political commentary looking at the civil rights movement, the anti-nuclear movement, um, you know, really trying to bring to bear his spirituality 
to the pressing social and political issues of the day. So here was a man who was living a monk's life, you know, a life behind a cloister, but seeing spirituality as not just something that needed to be tucked away and hidden somewhere, but as a way of, of commenting on and, um, and reflecting on the pressing issues of our day. Uh, historically, I mentioned St. Francis, Francis of Assisi. He's considered to be a great mystic. Somebody who people may not be as familiar with, but who I am quite fond of, was a woman who lived in the 1300s. She's known as Julian of Norwich. Uh, she, She lived a solitary life, and she was a visionary. She had visions when she was 30 years old. And then she wrote a book. It was the first book written by a woman in the English language. And this is something I could just say as an aside. Many of the medieval mystics were women. And these were women at a time when women had no access to education, obviously were not priests, did not have the, uh, the ability to, to own property. You know, it was a patriarchal culture. Women were, were uh, under the, literally the ownership of either their fathers or their husbands. And so, you know, women becoming nuns was a, almost like a, a subversive act, an act, a way of getting out from under that kind of patriarchal world. And these women who had experienced kind of this sense of divine uh, closeness or union in their lives, and then would write about it at a time when, when you know, women were not really seen as having having a voice. They they grabbed the voice for themselves. So many of the medieval mystics were seen as foremothers, even of the, you know, the women's movement, the feminist movement of later ages. Well, Julian of Norwich, first woman to write a book in the English language, has this visionary experience when she's thirty years old, and her book is a theological book. You know, I say, okay, well, what's so exciting about that? Well, she makes statements that, you know, for the 1300s were truly radical. And even today, some people would consider them controversial. For example, she says there's no such thing as anger in God. That anyone who says, you know, God is angry, God is wrathful, God is a judge, God wants to send people to hell, blah, blah, blah. She said, nope, they're missing the point. That, that the divine, whatever the divine is, there's no anger in it. There's no wrath in it. She said when people talk about the wrath of God, they're projecting their own wrath onto God. Very much kind of a, a 20th century understanding, only she's writing this in the, in the uh, 14th century, 600 years ago. She, she says God is just as much our mother as our father. Again, kind of anticipating a lot of the conversation we're having about gender in our day only she was doing it 600 years ago. So this is something that you see again and again among many of the mystics is that they will make theological statements that are kind of, you know, ahead of the curve. Uh, maybe not quite as dramatic as Julian, but something that does show up again and again. So those are just a few examples. There are many, many more. Um, one of my older books is called um, Christian Mystics, 108 Seer Saints and Sages. And I give uh, little mini biographies of over 100 of these people who are considered to be uh, mystics of the Christian tradition. And I'm sure there are many, many more, but of course, I'm only responding to the ones who have actually left behind a written record that we can reflect on. Because among other things, mysticism is a literary tradition. It is it is a form of writing. It is a form of discourse in which people uh, try to articulate their spiritual experience and reflect on it in a way that hopefully will be meaningful for others as well. Well, thank you so much for that, Carl. I wanted to touch on Something you mentioned about Thomas Merton, which probably connects mm-hmm. with many of these figures of of someone that kind of expands out beyond their tradition to become knowledgeable on, on other traditions. And something you write towards the end of the book, 
how are we to meet the wisdom of other faith traditions, even those of us committed to maybe one specific tradition? So I, I'd love mm -hmm. to hear a, a bit about that. Well, you know, I grew up in, like I said, a very traditional mainline Protestant kind of Christian world. And then I became involved in charismatic Christianity, which tends to be theologically very conservative. So I grew up in a world that was suspicious of other religious traditions. You know, there was this idea that if you want to go to heaven, you need to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I'm sure you have heard that line many, many times. Um, I would argue that that theology is bad theology. I don't think that that is what, what Jesus meant for us. And I certainly don't think, you know, even if you can argue that, that Jesus had a message like that in the New Testament, I don't think it's a message that, that um, is, remains meaningful or useful today in the world that we find ourselves in today. Like it or not, we live in a global village. I, I live in Metro Atlanta. In Metro Atlanta, we have almost 30 Buddhist sanghas. We have several large Hindu temples. We have a vibrant Muslim population, a vibrant Jewish population. Of course, many we have Wiccans and pagans, people like that. We have many people who have say no thank you to any kind of organized religion. So, um, so the reality is, is that you know, um, I think even my grandparents, my great grandparents, there was this idea that America was a Christian nation, and. Other religions were located in other parts of the world. That no longer is the reality. The reality is that we live in a global village, and certainly everybody, just by virtue of their phone or their, their internet connection, has access to all of the world's wisdom as well. I write for a, a website called Patheos, which um, it's, I think their tagline is hosting the conversation on faith. And they literally have channels for all the major uh, religious traditions, also a non-believers channel, an atheist channel. Um, and then various, uh, you know, category, you know, kind of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, categories that maybe aren't religion specific, but speak to specific dimensions of spirituality or faith. I write for the channel called the Contemplative Channel, for example. So at any rate, you know, the reality is, is that that here we are in a world where, you know, your next door neighbor could, you know, you could be a Christian, your next door neighbor could be a Muslim, the person down the street is a Buddhist, the person down the street is a non-believer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the obvious question is, how do we get along? Uh, I think we all saw what happened on September 11th, 2001. We know what happens when we don't get along, that, that if we continue to simply have mistrust and fear of the other, and we see the other as dangerous, we see the other as a threat, that leads to violence. And, um, and that's just not tenable. It, I, and I think it is a betrayal of the world's great wisdom traditions. Jesus, Jesus was not a proponent of violence. Jesus said, love your enemies. Now, people will say, he said, I, you know, I, I, I came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. He was speaking metaphorically. Love your enemies. There's no metaphor there. That's a teaching. You know, and so the reality is you can't love your enemy when you're running a sword through them. The reality is, is we have to find new ways to integrate and new ways to to at the very least be good neighbors to one another. And so, you know, this means we have to learn how to how to respectfully disagree. You know, how can we be in conversation with people who don't see the world the same way we do? This is a vital question. 
It is, and it's not just a religious question. As you know, it's also a philosophical question. It is also a political question. You know, we are living in a moment in time where we do not know how to disagree politically. Just go on to social media. You know, that's that's all the evidence anybody needs. And it has led to, you know, to violence in cities like Portland, Oregon, or the, the, the violence we saw on January 6th in Washington, D.C. You know, uh, the reality is, is that if we, if we choose a way of discourse that is involved in fearing or demonizing the other that will lead sooner or later to violence. And so so we have to find a different way of how we make sense of our differences and how we learn to manage our differences and I would argue even celebrate our differences. That that we don't all have to see eye to eye in order to get along and to build a good society. In fact, um, you know, the whole thing about democracy, democracy is built on the idea of, of competing ideas. We let the ideas compete in order to find the best ideas. And how sad it is right now that we, we have so much of our, our political and our media infrastructure is just devoted to constantly making the other side wrong. You know, and that's across the board. You know that the, the the left and the right are equally guilty of that, and so and so. And hey, listen, I have I have strong political views. I think most most thinking people do. So I'm not saying we should just all abandon our views. I'm saying we have to learn better ways to to meet those who disagree with us. And so, what is true in the political realm is equally true in the religious realm. Now, some of my more conservative Christian brothers and sisters will say, "But what about hell? What about judgment?" And I would argue hell, as most Christians understand it today, is largely an invention of the Middle Ages. So, so you've got that issue. Um, and then, you know, again, there is a, there's a strong kind of theological narrative within the Bible that, that this whole idea of salvation is not about being, being punished for things we've done wrong, but looking for ways to heal people who are broken or who are wounded. And that, you know, sin, what is, what is sin? I would argue sin is the, the way we hurt one another and the way we hurt ourselves. And, and, and unfortunately, most human beings have the capacity to hurt, to hurt themselves or hurt others. And we need, we need to, to find ways to respond to that, to heal that, to, to repair that. Uh, the, you know, the Jewish tradition has this wonderful concept of tikkun olam, which means repairing the world, repairing the brokenness in the world. And, and I think that's something that all positive spiritual and hopefully political, philosophical uh, commitments can get behind. You know, how can we work together to make a better world? And, and if that is our starting point, rather than who's right and who's wrong, then we can, we can build a society that does have religious and spiritual diversity. Uh, yeah, there will always be some, you know, some, some challenge, some, some, you know, cutting edges. I mean, it's, it's hard to be in relationship with people who see the world radically differently than you do. I'm not saying any of this is easy, but I'm saying it's vital and it's necessary in today's world and the world that, you know, that tomorrow will bring, whether we're ready for it or not. Do you see this? Have I answered your question? Oh, absolutely. Uh, And I want to follow up with it with one, one more, if we could. Um, And I think it's such an important point. I I wonder, and I've heard that maybe exploring other traditions, maybe counterintuitively can deepen your own particular faith or, or maybe provide greater understanding of your particular path. For example, I've been a, a longtime subscriber to 
Richard Rohr's daily email. And I think there's been a number of um, things that have come out around like Buddhism, for example, maybe as a Christian exploring and understanding Buddhist concepts should not be something that is uh, feared or avoided, but something that could deepen uh, your faith as a Christian. Would that be something that connects with you at all? That's well. First of all, that's very much my experience, and I've actually written written about that more than once. That you know, that for me, you know, again, my my faith identity is very much bound up in the narrative, the story of Jesus of Nazareth, and and yet, you know, I've been interested. I'll tell you, I was in high school, and I the, the first book I read that was by a non-Christian, was an autobiography of a yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. So obviously a Hindu teacher, a yogi, uh, you know, from India, but eventually settled in Los Angeles. And I think his organization is still, you know, still out there. But, um, but the book just blew my mind wide open. And it just gave me this whole different perspective on spirituality, on eternity, on God, you know, on, on what it means to live a good life, what meditation is, what prayer is, what the inner life is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I took that new perspective back to my experience as a Christian. Now, I think, you know, fair is fair. I think there are some people, they'll read a book like that and they'll say, I'm done with Jesus. I want to go, you know, live in an ashram. Mm. And I think that's yeah. why some Christians are really afraid of engaging with other other traditions. It's like, well, what if I find that that's where my heart calls me? Well, my answer is if that's where your heart calls you, follow your heart, you know? I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I know there's some Christians who do. And this goes back to how you image God. And if you image God as angry, as punishing, as, you know, intolerant of disobedience, whatever that is, then of course you're going to be afraid that if if I get off the straight and narrow God's going to get me, you know? But if you image God as the fountain of love, as the source of all consciousness, the source of compassion, the source of being, the source of of life, then this question becomes, you know, what is the best way for me to respond to that fountain of life and of love and of consciousness? And for some of us, it's being a Christian, you know, exploring the mystical tradition within Christianity. For others, yes, you know, being a Buddhist, getting into the the profound interior work of meditation, you know, can can be profoundly meaningful. I have a friend who um, uh, he was the the director of the Atlanta Shambhala Center for a number of years. He 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 no longer has that role, but you know, is a practicing Buddhist. He's you know a few years older than me. Grew up Catholic. You know, and um, and Catholicism just wasn't for him. The first time he read a book by a Buddhist, he knew that's where he belonged. Well, here I am. You know, I'm a go to mass every Sunday kind of a Catholic. He doesn't he doesn't hold that against me. He's not afraid of me. He's not critical of me. We just we have different paths, and and we get together and we have conversations. We will talk about Thomas Merton, or we'll talk about uh, Chongyang Trungpa Rinpoche, or you know various other writers of, from both traditions. And we're both seeking to grow and to learn and to cultivate our friendship, you know. And so I think I think this is what the world needs: is 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 people who are not afraid of other traditions. But I think to to go back to the original point, you need to be grounded in your own tradition, or else just about anything you read could could 
you know, then you might be following that. So I think there is a danger of a kind of a spiritual dilettantism or a superficiality where I kind of, you know, well, if I read a book on Buddhism, then I'm a Buddhist. And then next week I read a book on Islam. And so I become a Sufi. And then then the week after that, I'm reading a book about Kabbalah. So I decided I want to be Jewish. You know, that there's a rootlessness. And I think we live in a rootless culture. So I'm sure that some people have that experience. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm not sure that it's the most skillful way to to go about cultivating one's interior life. So so I would argue, take the time to be rooted in one tradition. It doesn't have to be the tradition you grew up in. Although in my case, that's where I eventually decided I belonged. But you know, if you're rooted in one tradition, then engaging in the wisdom of another tradition will actually enhance and deepen your faith. And um, while I think again, paradoxically, it also in my case I just have so much respect for the wisdom of other traditions. And the more I learn about, you know, and, and I am especially interested in Buddhism. So I'll, I'll keep coming back to that one as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the more I learn about Buddhism, the more I want to know about Buddhism. But, um, but you know, and I've gone, on, I've gone on Buddhist retreats. I've gone on Buddhist weekends. I've always enjoyed them. But, you know, then I want to go back and I want to hang out with, with Jesus some more or hang out with Thomas Merton or Teilhard de Chardin. So I, I know that my heart really belongs to the narrative of the Christian tradition. That's my home. It will always be my home, even if I decide, you know, let's say the Pope does something really beyond the pale tomorrow and I just am totally fed up with Christianity and I decide I'm going to spend the rest of my life as a Buddhist. The reality is, is I would be a Buddhist with a long with a long Christian history in, in me. And so I, w- I could never be the Buddha, a Buddhist the way Chick Nhat Hanh, who was raised in Vietnam, who came from a Buddhist family in a Buddhist culture, could be a Buddhist. And I think we just have to kind of acknowledge that. There's nothing right or wrong here. There's just, there's just mm-hmm. diversity of experience. And so it's good, to, it's good to acknowledge your own experience, the experience of your parents, your, your grandparents, your ancestors. That's part of what shaped us. Um, and then, you know, we get our lives, we get to make the choices that, that we are presented with living in this time of the global village when we have more access to more wisdom from more different traditions than ever before in history. And so, yes, many of us will choose either to change paths or to allow another path to be in dialogue with our own. I think that's part, that's kind of the cutting edge of, to use Christian language, of where the Holy Spirit is leading us, you know, that, mm-hmm. that we're being led into really deepening our bonds as a human family. And so, um, you know, I think the old Christian idea was we convert everybody. We make everybody Christian. That's monoculture. And anybody who farms know that monoculture is not sustainable. And I think what's true with agriculture is just as true as spirituality. So we, we, you know, we need, we need the diversity of different spiritual traditions, different wisdom traditions, different spiritual cultures. And, um, and out of that, we can be, you know, we can still be faithful to the path that we find ourselves in. That's really helpful. I I appreciate that, Carl. I want to ask just one final question. Our time has flown flown by here, and I want to be respectful Uh of your time. You write in the book, using this image of of the traveler through through the fog, and there's something specific Mm -hmm. that you write that I wanted to touch on. Such seeking implies a journey, a spiritual path to follow, but the journey seems to be to a place 
where we already are. I think sometimes when we think of spiritual path and spiritual growth, we maybe have an image of climbing a mountain instead of maybe right where we we are. Could you kind of wrap up the conversation with some thoughts there? Well, I think, you know, one of the things about about mystical spirituality is it's profoundly paradoxical, which means almost anything you say, you could probably get away with saying it's opposite. And and I think this is a good case in point that yes, there's there's this long tradition within Christianity of of pilgrimage. Think of, you know, the Pilgrim's Progress, a, a classic book of of devotion, not necessarily a mystical book, but a book of Christian piety and devotion. Uh, the Ascent of Mount Carmel, Dante's Divine Comedy. A, a, a pilgrimage through hell, purgatory, and heaven. Uh, Thomas Merton uses that image with his book, The Seven-Story Mountain. There's um, the ascent of Mount Carmel the, from, from St. John of the Cross. There is the stairway of perfection from Walter Hilton. So again and again and again and again, this this model, the ladder of divine ascent from St. John Climacus. Um, but then the paradox John O'Donohue, the wonderful Irish mystic that just died about 13 or 14 years ago, uh, he said, if there is a spiritual journey, it would be a quarter of an inch long. And his idea was it's just long enough to come back to who you truly are. Um, was it a Krishnamurti? Not a Christian, but certainly a, a world teacher, a, you know, a great spiritual sage of the 20th century, said truth is a pathless land. So, so there's this idea that, that you know, we don't need we don't need to travel from point A to point B. I think T.S. Eliot in his Four Quartets talks about the end of all of our searching will be to come back to where we began and know the place for the first time. So I think the journey, quote unquote, may be a journey of a deepening recognition that, that does not necessarily involve movement. It may involve kind of sinking or deepening or, um, you know, you could also say ascending as well. But... Um, so, so I think there's room for both of these metaphors, and they are. That's what they are. They're metaphors. You know, obviously, you know, there have been people who have, have, have taken real pilgrimages. I mean, think of the pilgrims of Plymouth Rock, you know. But, but there's also, I think, for many of us, it's an interior pilgrimage that is shaped by the books we read, by the the teachers we study from. I mean, you mentioned Richard Rohr, somebody else who who has been formative in my life as well. And 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 Richard would be very embarrassed to hear me say this. That he is still alive. But I think he he qualifies as a great mystic of the Christian tradition, certainly of our time, and um, you know, and I think the people will still be reading him five hundred years from now. But um, so you know, so yeah, you know, it's it's live live the life you're given. For some of us, there's physical movement. For some of us, there's interior movement. For some of us, there may be stability. Saint Benedict, the founder of of Benedictine monasticism you know, talks about stability as one of the core values of a monk, you know, learning, learning to bloom where you're planted, that kind of thing, to find meaning right here and right now. And so, um, you know, what, what others have called the practice of the presence of God or the sacrament of the present moment. So, so I think there's, there's room for both metaphors. And, you know, the question then becomes, which one maybe is more meaningful for your particular life story? You know, again, I, I started out as a Lutheran, then became a charismatic, then kind of, you know, in college, I was a member of the Church of Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. From there, I became an Episcopalian. Then I went off and explored Buddhism and Wicca and paganism and that kind of thing. And then I became a Catholic. Clearly, that has a pilgrimage element to it.
physically. Grew up in Virginia, lived my adult life in, in Virginia, then in um, West Virginia, then in uh, Georgia, Tennessee, back to Georgia. So some physical movement as well. But there's also, you know, this is my body. Now you can say, well, the body changes every seven years. But um, but given that reality still, the memories are my same memories. The sense of self is the same self. Scars from, you know, things that happened to me when I was seven years old or, or 20 years old, I'm still carrying on this body. This is the seat. This embodiment is the place where I encounter the divine, where I cultivate my heart, where I try to be more loving and more kind to my fellow sisters and brothers and friends. So, you know, so back to the spiritual journey is a quarter of an inch, learning to be more at home in our bodies. I think that's an important spiritual task that, that, that we all need to do. And Christianity hasn't always been the best at doing this, which is why I think so many Christians today turn to yoga or turn to Tai Chi or Qigong or even, you know, meditation practices, because all of those practices serve to help us to be more at home in this body that we've been given as a place where, where we live out this experience of trying to find union with the divine, however you may define or understand that. I love it. That's a beautiful way to wrap up. This has been great. Where can people go to learn more about you and your work, Carl? Well, uh, I'm online. I, I actually co-host a podcast myself called Encountering Silence. So you can look for Encountering Silence wherever you get your podcast. But also on my blog and, and information about my books and my speaking gigs is at uh, Anamkara. It's a, an Irish word that means soul friend. So let me spell it. A-N-A-M. C-H-A-R-A dot com. That'll actually, when you visit the landing page, you'll see both me and my wife. My wife is a, is a is an artist. She does she does a wearable art, t-shirts, scarves, those kinds of things. So you can check those out, but then you can also check out my blog and my, my writings as well. So Great. We'll link all of that in the show notes. I'm truly grateful for your time. Thank you so much. You are more than welcome. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.